everyone. This is Scott Bowden and Brian Last. Uh, we are here with a very different episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. As um, I'm sure everyone listening to this program knows by now, uh, Brian Lawler uh, committed suicide over the weekend uh, in his jail cell. He hanged himself. Um, he had been incarcerated for a few weeks. Uh, I've been following the situation very closely uh, since it happened. Uh, Kevin Lawler, who I stay uh, pretty close to and keep in touch with, was letting me know what was going on uh, right when it happened. And, and again, it's it's one of those situations, and, and I've and I've talked about it before. I've been, I've been saying this since 2009. Whenever somebody calls me about Brian or sends me an email, if I see Brian, if I would see Brian's name in the subject heading, my immediate thought was, "Oh my God, he's dead." Um, I, I hate to say that. And it's hard for me to believe that that this is the way life turned out for him. Uh, quite frankly, he was the most natural talent that I've ever seen in the business. And I, I saw his first match, and it was incredible uh, in a little gymnasium in a bad in a very bad part of Memphis, working an outlaw show for the Snowman Eddie Crawford. Um, I just like to kind of. I guess share my memories of Brian and and let people in on maybe a different side of him that uh, wasn't apparent on camera. There have been a lot of things said, some of those, and a lot of it's true. Um, but Brian is is should not be dismissed as uh, an addict, uh, or that's not all he should be known for. I mean, there's a lesson to be learned there. Uh, it just seems like history continues to repeat itself in the wrestling business, sadly. Brian was uh, is like he was just a train without brakes for the last several years, and everybody could see where it was going. And I think even he knew to an extent, but I think he had passed the point where he really cared. I think that's where I think that's why he kept finding himself in the in these situations. Uh, Jerry Lawler told me not too long ago. He's like, gosh, it seems like every time Brian calls me. He says, you're not going to believe what happened to me. <laughs> um, and if you look at even over the last several weeks, I mean, gosh, arrested for not paying a hotel room, uh, leading police on a high speed chase. Th this is this is not the, the guy that I knew and who I met in 1990. And I, I hope after this episode that, that some of you can maybe um, maybe see Brian for who he truly was, a very sensitive intelligent guy who didn't even really want to be in the wrestling business at the beginning. He had his mind on a different career path and seemed destined to follow that. Like he was, he was too smart to fall into the trappings of the wrestling business, but in the end he did. And it ended tragically. Well, let's go back there. Let's go back to the very beginning because obviously you were a wrestling fan, but the fact that you were able to get involved in the wrestling industry was because of your relationship with the Lawler family. And it started with you and Kevin and you and Brian. So let's go back to the beginning. Talk about when you first met Brian Lawler and what was he like back then? Well, I was introduced to uh, Kevin Lawler first uh, through a mutual friend of mine. Uh, I believe they were both sacking groceries at Kroger and Bartlett. <laughs> and meanwhile, Brian was delivering pizzas for godfathers the the national pizza chain that used to have like the gangster commercials and all that and 
Brian, Ma- uh, Brian also managed the restaurant, believe it or not. And he, uh, he would, but he would, he would make probably 80% of the deliveries. And so to, you know, to get the tips and he was driving around in one of his father's old, uh, Lincoln continentals, <laughs> which is just hilarious. I can only imagine the look on people's faces when you see this guy who looks a little like Jerry Lawler could probably, you know, could easily pass for a son. And he's, and you know, he's pulling up with, uh, with, with this Lincoln, Lincoln continental full of pizzas, uh, which is just ridiculous. But the first time I met him, I actually, I think was at a Godfather's. And uh, like I said, I was already friends with Kevin and he just, you know, everyone talks about, you know, Lawler's kind of cocky walk and everything and Vince McMahon's deal. And he, he, he just, he sauntered into the place. Like he was Mr. Perfect. You know, it was more like that Kurt Hennig, you know, just kind of like sauntering, uh, maybe a little bit of, of a of a strut to it, but just uh, and within within twenty seconds of talking to him, I I quickly just thought thought to myself, this guy is putting up a front. He's not nearly as confident as he thinks he you know as he as he wants people to to think that he is. When you first start talking to him. What's that like? I mean, do you say I'm friends with your brother? We just, yeah, we, we just, yeah, we start, we start joking a little bit and, you know, Kevin had been promoting or promoting, they've been dreaming up these uh, scenarios Kevin and Brian and all these neighborhood kids who went to Craigmont high school, they all were, were characters in the NWA the neighborhood wrestling alliance that, that Kevin Lawler dreamed up and Kevin had all of, all of these incredible comic book illustrations i mean he was so gifted just like his father and Brian was part of a tag team i can't remember who the other guy was but he was bodacious brian i actually know it was tony williams i think it was tantalizing tony and bodacious Brian, and they actually wore the the same like zebra striped tights that they would eventually wear as the new kids on on Memphis television. And you know, my friends and I, we did some backyard wrestling, but this was on a different level. Like Kevin had like the whole year mapped out in these notebooks and the angles that would lead to these blow offs and all this kind of stuff. And it just, it, I I mean, I was just absolutely blown away. And he showed me like one of the tapes and. Uh, there was an announcer who worked briefly for Memphis named David Jett, and he had a wrestling ring set up in his in his backyard. And I, I've been like worked out with Brian and uh, and Kevin and a bunch of other guys. Nearly Brian nearly killed me with a uh, one of those Terry Gordy uh, sidewalk slams. <laughs> I just totally, I felt like my ribs were broken. It completely just knocked the wind out of me, and I was trying not to uh, not to sell it and, and let him know about it. But you know, I was really quick quick witted, and almost instantly, Brian and I were insulting each other about something. And uh, I think part of it, I think, I think maybe he'd seen one of my backyard wrestling tapes and he was just like, God, well, that's just a bunch of crap. Oh, you're the big Bartlett wrestler. Uh, yeah, it was the most, it wasn't the most intelligent conversation in the world. And I think I was like, yeah, nice mustache, you know, because uh, <laughs> even though Craig Mott and Bartlett weren't separated by many miles, uh, it was almost like this rite of passage to Craig Mott to get your diploma. You had to grow a mustache, whereas we were mostly clean shaven over at Bartlett, a little bit, little bit preppier. They were, they, they were a little rougher around the edges over at Craigmont. But you know, he. But I, I remember though. You know, obviously we got 
uh, all the pizza we could eat for free. And then Brian emptied out the centipede machine and like dumped a bunch of quarters. Like, but of course, you know, he's like doing a nice thing, but he like dumps all these quarters on the table for, you know, they're like, we have, we have, we have to like pick them up and the whole thing. And, and he's, you know, meanwhile, he's just like strutting around and, you know, barking at his, uh, his team back there to make the pizzas and they need to head out and make it a delivery and come back. And, uh, just, uh, he was the most cocky pizza delivery guy you've ever seen in your life. Did you ever talk to him about wrestling back then? Yeah, you know, um, and I, I was I was stunned that he and Kevin both uh, had never heard the term babyface or heel. Uh, How is possible? I know. It, it, I was really surprised, and I, I, I we were we were all sitting around watching a pay per view, and I just was like going on at length, you know, because I've been I've been reading the Observer for a while, and I was probably. I don't know if on a subconscious level, I was trying to sound like Dave Meltzer, but I was like, oh my gosh, that guy, he, you know, I can't remember who I was. I may have been Pillman. I think I was like pushing for like a Pillman Hill turn. I was like, yeah, you know, he's got this, you know, this ultimate baby face that the girls like him, but I can just see something in that guy. I mean, I think he could be one of the biggest heels in wrestling. And people finally, they interrupted me. They're like, what do you mean by baby face and heel? <laughs> And I just was like, uh, don't you know? And they were like, no. I was like, you know, good guy, bad guy. Mm. But why baby face? I said, well, I, I, I don't know exactly, but I mean, it just, it just you know, it, to me, it would be obvious what, what, what each one meant. And I don't even know if they had heard the term heel before, but in movies and gangster movies and stuff like that, I'd always heard the term, he, you know, oh, you know, that guy's a real heel. Uh, so to me, the terminology instantly clicked and I knew what it meant, but, uh, but they didn't. And it's astounding because Brian was, I think was only a year younger than me. So he, I, I was, a, I had just gotten out of uh, high school and he was a senior in high school when I met him and Kevin, I think was a junior. So they were a little younger, but you would think being the son of Jerry Lawler and, and going to the wrestling matches every Monday night, they would have picked some of this lingo up, but I guess it goes to show you just how protected the business was back then. So he's working for Godfather's Pizza. He has no intention of being in the wrestling business at this point? No. Uh, he he even remarked a few times. You know, Brian was always defiant about, about most everything. Uh, he would play devil's advocate about everything. He... He would actually kind of get mad at Kevin for watching WWE pay-per-views. And once his dad found, I think his dad like completely lost his temper one time because in, in Jerry's mind, he was supporting the competition. You know, don't believe those, those uh, WrestleMania history <laughs> productions that WWE used to have where, where, where Jerry Lawler was talking about he and Jerry Jarrett going to buy a ticket and, and watching Mr. T and Hulk Hogan teams take on Paul Orndorff and Roddy Piper. Uh, no, that did not happen. Uh, they were absolutely livid that they were doing this and promoting in their backyard to the point that Kevin would catch shit for even just ordering the pay-per-view. And Brian was sort of like that too, but then he would come in and like start watching it, you know, especially if, if a guy he liked on it, he, he, he admired Kurt Hennig. Uh, he liked, you know, he liked Ric Flair. He liked the British Bulldogs. Uh, so, you know, he knew what a good worker was. He liked Ted DiBiase, but he always said, he always acted like to me that he was like, you know, he's like, ah, you know, I could, I could do it if I wanted to. I'm a big better than half those guys in there. But, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to get a scholarship and I'm going to, you know, be a physical therapist and work for a pro football team. 
And he seemed like he just had a you know really good head on his shoulders, and that um, that he was going places. And and you know, and this is just again, this is just my take on it because when I was meeting the, meeting Kevin and Brian both, you know, growing up watching their dad, and it was sort of surreal to be around them. And I would always kind of wondered what what they were like because they were so similar in age to to me. Um, and they were obviously two completely different people. And actually, his their their mother Kay told me that she always thought that Kevin would would be the one who made a career in wrestling just because he was so obsessed with it. He had all these incredible ideas, and he could you know could book it you know he could see the big picture and and book out a card years in advance before he even knew really what the term booker was um and he was and he loved McMahon's presentation of of leading to big shows and that's what he was doing in his little uh nwa uh, neighborhood wrestling alliance would they get in trouble for any wrestling pay-per-view or just wwf pay-per-views uh, I think mostly it was it was centered around WWF because in the, the Crockett had not really been uh, invading their their territory yet. You know that that I think that would come a little bit. Well, I don't know. Actually, no. At that point, they had so it, it very well could have been. But you know what? It seems like we rarely got the WCW pay per views because Kevin was like such a big WWF guy, and right when his dad got hired, I think it's the only time that Jerry tried to help him. Uh, he took a stack of his drawings and, t- and showed them to Vince. And I, I, for the life of me, I, I don't know why he, he wouldn't have uh, hired Kevin, just because Kevin had some really, really great characters uh, in his mind and could lay it out and explain who each guy was. He would call me sometimes, and I would pick up the phone, and it would just be this music playing. And I'm like, what? What? And this is before caller ID. And then slowly I realized this is Kevin Lawler playing, playing me the entrance music for a wrestler that who does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that's how detailed he was. And and Brian, I could tell, had a good mind for it. But I think he was a lot like his father in that it came so easy to him that he never really developed that side of it. Uh, and I think also that he... He, you know, he reached a certain level as a performer and then sort of, I, did, I don't know, just didn't work hard enough to take it to the next level. I, I used to, uh, I think, um, I think it was in the pro wrestling torch or something where uh, Lance Storm and Chris Jericho were getting over in Smoky Mountain and Chris Jericho said something about watching tapes of Brian Lawler uh, and his interview skills when, he, when he, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself here. And if you stop and think and look at what Jericho was able to to go on and do uh, with his uh, persona, it's it reminds me a little bit of Brian in Memphis in '92 and '93 when you know Jerry Jarrett is going. You know, this reinvigorated Jerry Jarrett. You know, he's told me that uh, he had almost hit the wall creatively. He, you know, they were struggling to get two and three thousand people at the Coliseum, a far cry from its heyday. McMahon was starting to to make headway and drawing big crowds, and then comes Brian. And I, it was like the second coming of Jerry Lawler, and and especially when they, you know, they kept him apart for a while, but when they eventually put Brian and Jeff together, I mean, that was just an incredible feud with all the crazy stipulations that we'd all grown up watching, whether it be with Lawler feuding with uh, Jerry Lawler feuding with Jerry Jarrett or Lawler and Bill Dundee, uh, and it and it was some incredible television. 
when you first met him and became friends with him, was Jerry a big part of his life? Was Jerry involved in what they were doing? Uh, not at that point. I, I think uh, growing up, he, he, he certainly wasn't. It, but you could tell they, man, they loved him, uh, especially Kevin. I, he, Kevin really wore it on his sleeve. He, I found it, I found it a little odd and sad at the same time. And I, I, I don't think Kevin would, would mind me sharing this. He had a, uh, he, he had a signed eight by 10 framed of his dad, like, you know, in that classic, almost like the thinker pose, <laughs> you know, where Lawler's got his fist underneath his crown shaped goatee and kind of doing that cocky smirk. And I just thought, wow, it's, 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 I don't know. It's, it, Kevin may not even understand why I think that's sad, but it's almost like he was just another fan who had the king on a pedestal. And I think, uh, I, you know, and God, man, and their, their, their house was constantly turned into a wrestling ring. When they were in that backyard, <laughs> when they were in that backyard ring, they were just like, it was all hell breaking loose in that living room. You know, it was, everything was turned into uh, a wrestling ring and a wild brawl and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I can't, even, God, I can't even remember how we wound up on that show with the snowman. Kevin, I think met the snowman and got us booked on there somehow. I had, uh, Kevin and I had tried to have a match somewhere and it was absolute garbage. So I didn't want to get out there again, especially when I knew I had a feeling that Brian and Tony Williams were going to go out there and, and at least do something athletic. So I was a manager, oddly enough, in a wheelchair. That was sort of my gimmick, which Lawler eventually ended up seeing this tape, but, and I, I ended up doing a, a deal with Eddie Gilbert where I was a manager in, in a wheelchair. But um, we hid this from from Lawler's dad, knowing that he was going to find out. And it didn't take too long. But that night, man, I, again, it was, I think it was the Porter Gymnasium in Memphis. And it was a, it, even by wrestling standards, it was a pretty seedy crowd um, and maybe about 75 people there. And I'm not kidding you, man. Brian and Tony tore the house down. I, it, it was it was amazing to me that two guys who had never really had a match in front of a crowd. I mean, yeah, they'd been doing stuff in the backyard, but in completely, absolutely, completely self-taught, were pulling off these moves that I'd seen like Jushin Liger do uh, on, on you know because I was tra tape trading at that point uh, and the British Bulldogs and just it, it it was really something to see and not only that but but the timing of it you know Brian would also then pause and he would do the you know the fake uh, Hulk Hogan like oh yeah let me hear you with the ear cup and just strutting around and he just ha I I'd never seen a guy who had so much so much on the natch. Now you could argue that some of that arrogance and uh, just being a just being an asshole maybe it was no act right but he he was definitely he was gifted uh, and and together you know Tony never went on to to do anything and Tony was a solid worker but I think really it was kind of Brian carrying carrying the whole show and, and making Tony look good and they even had the the like. They even had the deal where Tony would start to make a comeback and then Brian would do classic little heel moves to cheat and gain the advantage back. And then finally, Tony, you know, the crowd's like stomping their feet. And, and this arena had been dead all night, especially when I was out there. And finally, Tony slips free and connects with a drop kick and 
catches Brian right in the face and I think bloodies his nose and the place just went ballistic. And you would think, wow, over a drop kick. But these guys had so much psychology. Uh, again, it was just it just came so naturally to them in the pacing of the bout. Uh, it was it was it was amazing to see. And when Lawler found out about it, when Jerry Lawler found out, he's like, all right, I want to see this. I want to see this damn tape. Right. And after he saw it, there was no more heat. And he was like, OK. And Lawler went fishing around for some tights and trunks. So, and somehow, like, they found some masks. You guys are going to be on TV in two weeks as the Twilight Zone. Nebula and Quasar, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> and they would do the, you know, when they finally made their TV debut in 1990, you know, I think they would do the Mr. Spock, you know, <laughs> where they would spread their fingers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and it was really funny because they were, they again, they were pulling off these moves that that you'd see like the Bulldogs do. And these TV jobbers, they definitely stood out among the crowd of TV jobbers on Memphis television. How do you think that changed the way Jerry saw him? Instantly, it was it was to me, um, you know, and I, I wasn't around them a lot before, and I know that they went to the matches uh, almost every Monday night. And uh, Randy Hales recently told the story about how he would be their chauffeur, and uh, but it goes to show you they they were clearly never really allowed backstage. They you know they never picked up any terms or anything like that. I know they spent a lot of birthdays uh, alone. Uh, or, or without their father, rather. I mean, they had th- that neighborhood. It was like a classic neighborhood. You know, everybody knew everybody, and uh, you know, everybody hung out together after school, played sports together. Uh, so uh, they, you know, they were. And Brian especially was popular, but he was popular in a weird way in that everybody knew him. Everybody, everybody liked him. He was respected, but I don't think he had a lot. I don't think he had very many close friends, you know, a a mutual friend of ours said that he he like thought the world, thought the world to Brian and grew up, kind of grew up with him. And he was a little bit older than Brian, but he goes, he was, he was just, he, he didn't let many people in, into his circle. Um, and I got, I I remember I got like a, like a early taste of his temper. Like we, we, for hours, we would play that Nintendo pro wrestling game. That uh, that was sort of like the for it was sort of the forerunner of uh, uh, the Fire Pro Wrestling. I think the guy who developed that game went on to develop Fire Pro Wrestling, the popular Japanese game. And we and like I wanted to. We both wanted to be the Amazon. Remember that uh, that character that was the creature from the Black Lagoon? Yes. <laughs> that you know, that claw. Like he and I were arguing over who was going to be that. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll be the Star Man. And then he's like, all right. And then, you know, he ends up beating me. And I'm like, well, I could beat you if I was the Amazon because that's who I usually play as. And so he's like, oh, here, 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 take it, take it. And I beat him and he he got so angry. <laughs> I mean, he got so pissed off and he's like, dang, come it. And like threw it down and left the room. And I was like, all right, I got, I got to get going. He's like, no, 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 you are going to play another game. You are going to play another game. And I sat back down and he ended up beating me. And I was like, all right, man, I'm getting out of here. But uh, <laughs> he was, uh, and I don't think he liked liked it too that uh, that I could hold my own with him when it when it came to uh when it came to insults um but uh yeah he was man he he, he was definitely a character and but before and right actually right before I even met them this and this was my senior year in high school and I, and I thought thought this was interesting because Lawler was Jerry Lawler was so popular in town 
Brian was, uh, it was the homecoming game. And I guess every year they would have like a special celebrity do something, uh, maybe present flowers to the homecoming queen, <clears throat> which sounds like a risky proposition with, <laughs> with the king involved. But Lawler, Jerry Lawler was on the sideline. And, you know, they're, the, the half is about to come up. They're going to have this presentation at halftime. And they're like, uh, all right, fans, be, be sure to stay in your seats uh, when this quarter concludes. We have a very special guest tonight. We're going to present the flowers to the homecoming queen, Jerry the King Lawler. And just this chorus of boo. <laughs> and I, I, I remember going, wow, I wonder what, I wonder what that's for. Uh, and I can't help but wonder if, if like, you know, maybe some people knew how detached he was from, from Brian's life. Um, I, I can't, I have no idea. I can't say for sure, but I just thought that that was hilarious. And Lawler, and Lawler even look, like, look, like did this thing. He almost like played along with it. He looked, looked back at the crowd and kind of went, yeah, <laughs> oh, too funny. It, 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 so it, it wasn't exactly Ozzy and Harriet and, and leave it to Beaver, you know, um, and, it, you know, and Kevin was was a lot quieter, uh, wasn't nearly as popular, didn't play sports, but it had a much better mind for the business and a lot more ambition when it came to uh, being involved in wrestling. And it was interesting when we had Bill Dundee on the show. And one of the things that annoyed Bill was that creativity and booking came so easy to jury and it didn't to him. You know, he had to really work at it and had to really study what Jerry Jarrett was doing. And he would get to the office early. Meanwhile, Lawler's, you know, when Lawler had the book, he's writing TV on the fly. You know, you're getting the TV lineup 15 minutes before they go on the air. Um, by the time I got there, it was like two minutes before you went on the air. You had no idea what you were going to do, which you can argue might give the show a certain sense of danger that way but uh it was it was always nerve-wracking um and i think you know it's almost like i like i i read these stories of, of chris jericho struggling as a heel uh eddie gilbert had been doing lawler impressions and could do a, a spot-on terry funk impression but when he initially turned heel and feuded with tommy rich i mean for months i mean eddie really struggled with it you know, he he just could not find it. And Brian, very quickly, and in a matter of weeks, I thought, man, had the had the rap down, had the psychology down. And the interaction with he and Dave Brown reminded me so much of a heel Jerry Lawler back in the 70s. He grew up in Memphis. His last name is Lawler. Did the fans realize that Brian Christopher was Brian Lawler? What percentage of the fans that were going knew that it was Jerry Lawler's son. Uh, God, 90%. (laughs) Uh, You'd have to be a a really casual fan not to know. And at that point, you know, Memphis was not drawing many casual fans. That was the the great, you know, in its heyday, they would, they would get the casual fans to come in. But uh, at that point, there were only like two, the two or 3000 hardcore regulars I would say they – it may even be higher than – maybe they all knew. Uh, you know, I was – I've always – I've mentioned this article that got me back into the wrestling business. Uh, through Brian and Kevin, I got to hang around backstage, and I, I set up the ring like once or twice. 
Uh, Kevin got on to me about that because I, I talked about how I used to set up the ring. And he, he said, yeah, you made it sound like you were doing it for like a year and you were really paying your dues. And I honestly did not mean for it to come off that way. But uh, I think it was the second time I'd done it. I kind of joked around with, with Jerry Lawler about something that Eric Embry said. I think it was like something like, Jerry Lawler, I've not never liked you. And Lawler goes, not never. And I go, huh, yeah, King. I mean, double negative, man. That always gets heat. <laughs> and and, and Lawler kind of chuckled a little bit. And afterward, he goes, hey, and I asked Kevin, he goes, who's that skinny punk hanging around in the back? And he's like, oh, it's, uh, you know, Scott Bowden. He goes, uh, ask him if he wants to referee. And uh, of course, I've joked about it before, but I think I think Jerry Lawler probably rues the day that <laughs> that he uh, that he asked Kevin uh, who I was and if I wanted to get involved in the business. Because at times I know I've driven Jerry uh, crazy, but I jumped at the chance and and for a while. And then uh, you know, Mr. Clyde, who we talked about on the show, uh, Nick Nahad, who was friends with with Brian and Kevin and went to Craigmont, you know, he started getting in and and he was a jobber and he was used in a high profile skit when they t- eventually turned Brian heel. And it, it just, you know, we, we started, I, I don't know. I think we all kind of started daydreaming a little bit like, wow, what if the, what if we really get a foothold here and, and Kevin starts booking and, and Brian takes off and, and somehow he and Tony have this big feud and then I'll be, you know, I, I really, even though immediately after I started refereeing, I, I started wearing starts polo shirts every single time that I refereed and I was pledging a fraternity then, uh, Pi Kappa Alpha. And I had my pipe pin on, on, and it was all very subtle by design if I ever turned that it'll make sense that I've been this cocky, arrogant, you know, rich kid who bought his way into the business. Um, and I just, I just, I don't know. I think we all kind of like thought, man, wouldn't it be great if we were all running things, then it would, then it would, then things would start working again. We'd start drawing money again. Um, I don't know if Brian shared that, that, that fantasy, but, uh, but I sure did. By the time I started watching him in 1993, I thought he was already great. His promos are great. His matches are great. I got to see some of that stuff with him and Jeff Jarrett. But when did Brian get comfortable as that persona in front of the camera? How good was he? When, you know, between when he first started in 1993, what was his path? Uh, well, they were the, you know, obviously the, the jobber tag team for a while. And then, it was funny because Jeff Baldron was doing that Baldron the Booker series, and he had who was it? He paired with Owen Hart. Uh, was it Benoit that he called the new kids? It may have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and Lawler, you know, it, whether he likes him or not, would read the Wrestling Observer, and. I think I think the name just stuck with him and he liked it. And uh, eventually, I, I guess when he thought that Brian and, and Tony were ready, uh, he knew that a lot of people in Memphis were going to instantly know who Brian was, because I think Brian had won like you know some kind of city honor as a football player. He was definitely not a not a great athlete, but everything Brian did, you know, um, he I'm not going to compare him to Rudy, but he did, you know, it was never going to be a college football player. He was never going to be a pro football player. He was never at that level, but he worked his ass off to be to play above uh, average. You know, to to be a, an athlete who who uh, was a standout. And I think he won like some all city honors and things like that. When really maybe uh, he shouldn't have. Um, 
I think I think the academic achievements that he had, which I found out, I mean, I knew that he was a straight A student and I knew that he had goals outside of wrestling. But when I did that magazine article on him, I mean, I, I, uh, I joked about it recently. I, it was like a, it was like a David Bixen span type article. You know, I, I hung around the family for two weeks. Uh, I followed them on the road. Um, I got these great interviews with, with Jerry Lawler and Dave Brown and Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett's the only one who tried to kayfabe me, by the way, which I thought was really funny, even though I assured him it was just for a magazine class and nothing more. It wouldn't, it would not be published. Um, and I was not, but I was also amazed that Jerry Lawler took the time with me and answered all my questions about it. And it, and it actually, it was a very, it was a very big turning point in my life because I became a journalist and after I did that, it was almost like I had no fear because I quickly realized even a guy like Jerry Lawler, who does a ton of interviews, everybody likes talking about themselves. <laughs> you know, you're not going to bug anybody when you ask them for an interview. And so after that, man, I could do I could approach anybody. And if they didn't want to talk, they didn't want to talk. But uh, I found that one of, the, one of the one of the first guys I interviewed for a for an assignment for the college newspaper was Larry Finch. It was the Memphis State basketball legend. But that was over the telephone. He wouldn't meet with me in person. And I was, you know, I, and I was scared to death then. But after that, after I got the king talking, man, and we talked for about an hour, I just went, good God, I, this is the deal, man. Everybody likes it. Even for just a, for a for an article that's not going to appear in, in publication. He just loves talking about himself. So uh, that was a, that was a big memory. And I remember, man, I, I read that article in class and that was the deal. Like we there were about 10 of us and we were going around the room and a, a couple of people read theirs. And I, I just thought, holy cow, I'm going to knock their fucking socks off with this. I mean, I. It, it was it was so good just because I, you know, I, I've been honing my talent as a as a newspaper reporter, uh, as an opinion columnist. And this was just right down my street, you know, and it was a subject matter that I was obsessed with. And I was also it was also my first glimpse into seeing Jerry interact with Kevin and Brian. And I could tell that they were excited, too, because I don't think that they had ever really hung with their dad like this. You know, they'd never driven much to or maybe not at all to Nashville with him. And here we were all doing it. And 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 it was fun. It was, but it was almost the only odd thing about it was that that Jerry was almost like one of us. You know, it, it didn't seem like uh, you could always have that. There's always that feeling sometimes when you're that age where it's like, oh, man, a parent's around, you know, they're in the car. So maybe we can't say this or that or can't joke about that with Lawler. It was like, you know, he was all, he was about the worst really when it came to, <laughs> to jokes and, uh, and subject matter and stuff like that. So, uh, and it was a big thrill for me, but when I, when it came around to me and I read that article out loud, people's I, just, their jaws just dropped and they're like, how in the world did you get that? And I was like, eh, just lucky, I guess. You know, I didn't, I didn't elaborate on the fact that I had refereed before any of that kind of stuff. And I remember uh, I got an A on it, and the woman was married to the, my professor was married to the sports editor at the Commercial Appeal, the Memphis newspaper. And she goes, "You have got, you've got to talk to them and let them 
you got to get the, the okay to publish this. And I said, yeah, but that's the thing. I, I, I gave my word that I wouldn't. And she goes, well, show it to him and, and, and see what he says. See what, if, you know, the thinking was that if Jerry Lawler gave a stamp of approval, that everyone else would be okay with it. And I took it over to Lawler's house over on Walnut Grove, where he does not live now, by the way. And he was back then he was really friendly toward me. Um, and he's like, yeah, he's like, hey, come on in. I was like, hey, I, I finished that article. And then he's like, oh, look at that. You got an A. <laughs> I said, yeah. He's like, he's like, can I read it? And I said, yeah. And I felt sort of unco- – I meant to – I was going to drop it off. And, and I didn't expect him to go because this was like a like an eight-page article. And there was a part in there where his ex-wife Kay says, you know, I Brian – his involvement in wrestling is strictly to get his dad's attention. It's like, Hey dad, I exist. And man, I, I have thought about those words a lot over the last couple of days. And it really, um, it, it, it shakes me up, you know? And I remember Lawler kind of looking at, I knew he was getting to that part and he kind of grimaced a little bit and he's like, Who's Kay McPherson? And I said, you know, you know, Kay, your your ex-wife. Oh, all right. Yeah, she remarried. Okay, yeah. McPherson, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he sounded like, mm. <laughs> you know, like kind of acknowledged it. And afterward, you know, he goes, he goes, you know, I I just feel like I shouldn't, I don't have the responsibility to, or I should, or I don't have the right to really discipline Brian and Kevin or talk to them like a father, because I was always on the road. So I, I just think the best thing I can do is try to be their friend. And looking back on it now, I, to me, it seemed really sincere at the time, right? With good intentions, but looking back on it now, it's almost like that classic Lawler babyface promo that you see in the media a lot of times where he's trying to cover something up or explain some kind of weird dysfunctional behavior in his, in his, whether it's his love life or, or his family life or, or whatever. Um, and he's so smooth with it. And, and, and I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not bad mouthing Jerry Lawler and I, and I really don't have a judgment on how he raised his sons. I mean, that's, that's his business. Um, it, it obviously, and this is not anything unique to the wrestling profession as as we know brian you and i were talking about a lot of second generation stars before we went on the air who struggled with the same thing well that's right we did talk about that and i do want to ask you because i don't know the answer to this but in those early years of brian's career the memphis locker room and you were around so you would know other than guys who were using steroids were there drugs around the shows at all? Were there drugs in the locker room? Were there uh, were there guys that would be bad influences on Brian? You know, a lot of people wonder where it did start from. Uh, it did not start in Memphis. Uh, it, and the, really, to be honest with you, the, the the only time I ever was around drugs or even participated in it was when, and I wrote this in, a, in an article, and it, it was not to be, I was criticized because some people were like, oh, you're just trying to be cool. Like, you started this article off, I smoked pot with Tommy Rich, and I went, no, I, I was trying to paint a scene of me being accepted 
for once and, and making a trip to Louisville, which I normally did not do because of my school schedule. Cause I was, I was a senior at Memphis state when, when uh, all this was going on at the height of it, when I was a heel manager and for that one, you know, for that one road trip, I was like one of the guys. And that was the whole point of me even mentioning the story. But with Brian, he was a teetotaler. I mean, he, he was so committed to his look. I mean, he, he had a goal in mind and that was to get to, to WWF and be a big star. Uh, and I thought that, you know, I honestly, and I, you know, he didn't have the best size. If he had been my height, I, I you know, I think, uh, I, I think he would have been a bigger star, but I know that Vince uh, instantly liked him. And I think it was a card in early 1993 where Lawler was wrestling Paul Neighbors, who was the referee who took my spot. <laughs> That should have been me in there with Vince McMahon at ringside. Uh, but, you know, nepotism. He was a cousin of Jerry Jarrett's. Uh, you know, Brian, uh, I think, gosh, I'm trying to think. There was something big that Brian did that night. Oh, he, was, oh, he worked The Undertaker. Yeah. And was like bumping like crazy, doing all this great stuff. Ends up winning by DQ. And from what I understand, that, that Vince w just was absolutely flat out impressed. Uh, you know, maybe not so much with this. Probably, probably was thinking, God, I wish this kid were bigger. Uh, and not too long after that, see, it did seem like Brian started swelling up a little, <laughs> a little bit more. And it, I don't know. To me, it just it never quite looked right on his body. You know, like he was just carrying too much of this, uh, too too much of this muscle mass. Uh, for for his uh, for his you know rather small frame, but I, I really thought I really thought that Brian was sky's the limit, and we, and they had a um, I remember he made his Madison Square Garden debut uh, at very last minute. Somebody was either injured. Oh, Shawn Shawn Michaels Shawn Michaels was out, and they had him come in and and do a job for uh, Superfly Snuka, which was just incredible. You know, it had to be incredible because. Snooker was such a big star when we were when we were younger. I know that Brian was was a fan of the 82, 83 Snooker. And, you know, to go to Madison Square Garden, make your debut and take the Superfly Splash, that had to be a big deal. And I, I remember asking Brian about it. And he was like, nah, I don't know. <laughs> it's all right. Just like, I don't know, just like anything else, really. Which is the same attitude that Jerry Lawler has always taken. You know, I, he he does this thing for the public where he's like, ah, you know, I just really want to do a WrestleMania main event. And Kevin asked him about it. And he goes, well, what did you think? He's like, about oh, what? He's like, WrestleMania. He's like, ah, just another night. <laughs> you know, it's you can't impress those Lawlers or they, or at least they don't. They don't they're, they're not going to put anything over. Let, let, let's just say that. Going back to the USWA. The first thing I think of with Brian Christopher would be, you know, beyond the new kids and him and Tony Williams breaking up. I enjoyed him and Jeff Jarrett working against each I other. I really, I mean, I loved it. I really did. And, and that's where Jeff's shortcomings as a babyface almost played to his strengths because he didn't have the, the, the great promos. And Brian had it just so on the natural, was so quick witted that you almost felt sorry for Jeff in a way. Um, but they really clicked. They clicked in the ring so much, and they and they really brought out the best in, in each other. And I really think that Jeff helped lift Brian uh, as far as ring work goes, and made Brian work hard. 
you know, because it, again, it was almost uh, uh, Jim Jameson and I were, were talking, uh, the former uh, TV jobber who we had a, had on as a guest, you know, really nice guy. He's going through some health problems right now. And he was like, God, man, he just instant messaged me. And he's like, man, how sad is this? And I said, I know. And I, I don't want to harp on this aspect of it because Brian was certainly more than a performer. But it's the most tragic waste of talent I think I've ever seen, you know, and having to watch this, you know, the, this this spiral over over the last 10 years or so has has been difficult, especially when you saw so much promise that I think was starting to peak in that feud with Jeff Jarrett. You know, they, they brought back all the crazy stipulations, as, as I mentioned, with the Dundee Lawler feud and and Lawler and Jerry Jarrett had that had that, you know, same kind of deal going on when Lawler was teaming with Jim White, managed by Sam Bass and feuding with Jarrett and Jackie Fargo and Tojo Yamamoto, the Holy Trinity, as, as Jim Cornette says, of baby faces back, back then. And it was just like history was repeating itself. And I remember, you know, I remember uh, they even dragged Mr. Clyde out there because Brian refused to put his hair up, which is exactly what Jerry did when he was younger. You know, it's always like Mickey Poole's hair was on the line and Mickey Poole got his head shaved. Well, Brian's manager, uh, I can't remember who this who this geek was, a real skinny guy. Uh, but he got his head shaved and then. The following, and then the next week, he had to put, uh, he refused to put his hair up again. And then Mr. Clyde comes out, Mr. Clyde's hair on the line. And Brian keeps trying to go get Jeff into, into this match. And it just goes to like Brian's facial expressions during that skit, during that little angle deal, they were just priceless. And I think that that's, that, you know, that's where. Brian really started to reach that next level, not only as a promo, because he and Brian were the, I mean, he and Jeff were the antithesis of each other. You know, you had this one guy who didn't have, it didn't come naturally to, he was, he was sort of awkward, but he was working his ass off to get better. And then you had Brian who just, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, this, I know what I'm doing. I've never done that move before. I'll go in there and do it and he'll nail it perfectly. But the biggest thing that he had, just like his dad, was the psychology of it. Just, just uh, like he'd been doing it for years. One of the one of the biggest crowd reactions that I'd seen at the Coliseum in years was when the, they were. It was right before Lawler debuted in WWE, I believe. I think this was in October, and Lawler debuted in, in December of that year on Primetime Wrestling. Uh, they were doing like a, a sort of a, a WWF. Uh, USWA feud that you would have like Coco Ware, who was supposedly representing <laughs> WWF, even though he hadn't wrestled there in, in a while. Uh, but they were getting some talent coming in, like the Bushwhackers and Papa Shango and people like that. But they got Shawn Michaels, a date on Shawn Michaels to come in. And I think with Doink the Clown. And so the top three USWA guys were forced to work together. Lawler, Jeff Jarrett and Brian. And the and this was the start of Brian's babyface turn, and it was actually something. It was a done. It was almost like the exact same build up to Jerry's initial babyface turn, because Brian was so damn funny on those interviews, and his, you know, his music video that he had cut where he picks up the homeless guy who was a legit homeless guy, uh, and whose mother flooded the station with phone calls. Everybody who knew that family called in uh dave brown i think was upset about it they ended up showing it one more time you could just see the disgust on dave's face 
I think they said, okay, you know what? We spent too much time and money on this video to, to never show it again. So we're going to have Brian force it on you and then we're not going to do it again. And, he, you know, he's in his, he's in the, this white Corvette uh, convertible that was Paula Lawler's. Everybody, everybody had seen Paula all over, all over town. So it was like the worst kept secret in town that he was, that he was Lawler's son, you know, and he picks up the poor homeless guy and uh, at the end of it, doesn't give him any money and Brian's eating crab legs and he gives the guy a can of spam. Uh, and then he comes out with this oversized Oscar <laughs> and just, it, it was funny cause he, he would just be like, he's like it's an Oscar Dave. It's an Oscar. And he's like, read what it says there. And he's like, best wrestling video ever. Now I'm surprised you can read Dave. And, and sometimes it wasn't that the joke was funny. It was just that that just that southern cocky heel delivery uh, that was just hysterical. Uh, he, he was the highlight of the USWA for me and a lot of people, I think, at that time. But we were just waiting for that moment that he was going to turn babyface. And I thought it was I thought it would be I thought it would culminate with, you know, heels beating the shit out of Brian. And Jerry makes a save, and he's like, that's my son. And there's incredibly emotional promo and that could have really sparked the houses, and we never got it. But for that night, it, they appeared to be going in that direction, and the, and Lawler and uh, Jeff Jarrett got eliminated. Brian was on his own, two against one. And he ends up pinning Shawn Michaels in the end to win it for the USWA. To me, that was, you know, we talked about our list of the top ten moments of Memphis wrestling, even though that that car did not sell out and it did not lead to big business. For me, that is a top 10 moment in Memphis wrestling history. I think it may have been the first time. I don't know how they would have ever teamed before that. Pretty sure that's the same time he and his dad were together on the same side. And it was the start of the babyface turn for Brian. And I, I and, the, and the crowd was so ready for it, even though there were only maybe three thousand people there. Like I think the crowd had bumped up a thousand with the WWF guys on the on the show. They just they popped huge, and I remember Jerry Jarrett especially. We were sitting up in the, uh, the uh, what they used to call the general admission, and they had blo- they had long since blocked that area off the cheap seats, and we were all it was like it was me Kevin. Uh, Jerry Jarrett, Lawler, and I think Tom Nunnery, a couple of these guys who, who are always a part of Lawler's little entourage are back there. And I remember Jerry Jarrett, you know, we'd been watching the matches all night. Obviously, Jerry Lawler was in, was in the ring at this moment, but Jerry Jarrett was still there. And I remember so wanting to talk to Jerry Jarrett. And it's kind of funny the way that that we talk so much now that that I was terrified to approach him back then. But I remember when that when that finish was executed, and the crowd, and, and Jerry Jarrett took in that crowd reaction. He hit his fist like, yes! Like, that was exactly what he had been building to. Shortly after this, Jerry Lawler would end up going to the WWF and spending a lot of time there, less Mondays in Memphis. Of course, Jeff Jarrett would go up there as well. What was that like for Brian when all of a sudden, not only is his dad not there, but other guys are starting to get chances in the WWF, and he's not one of them. You know, he got a shot at Madison Square Garden, but they weren't bringing him up to work TV and giving him a push. Well, I think that's when Brian really started uh, started really packing on some size. I think he saw that 
you know, if if Jeff Jarrett, if, if if these other guys can get up there and they can get a shot, that he was going to be ready when he had his. I, I was still kind of like going out with my college buddies. I was only uh, I got well, I was I was gosh, was I senior? Yeah, I think it was my '93. I was a uh, okay. That was. I had one more year of school left because I graduated in December of 94. And that's around the time that I started refereeing again because us, uh, I guess Paul Neighbors uh, wanted off the road and they and they turned back to me. And that, after I'd written that article and, you know, just kind of had been showing my face around again. And so, yeah, I started refereeing in, in December of 93. And I think that set Brian to take it to another level with his training, with his diet. He always talked about his diet. He I think he had had drank before, but was never a big drinker. But now he was like a total, I mean, he was a teetotaler and he would make fun of me because I, I would come in, you know, and I was still going to parties and I'd be like, oh my God. He's like, oh, you're hungover, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, he's like, God, so stupid. You're so stupid. Why would you do that? And it, it's just amazing to think, you know, how it all turned out for him. It's like he, he, you know, he knew, he, you know, it, it got, I got into an argument with a wrestling fan because she was saying, you know, Brian dug this hole for himself. This is not on Jerry or the family. Um, not in my experience. Brian was an intelligent guy who could see the big, he could see what could happen. I, I think he was fascinated a little bit with Tommy Rich, you know, a guy that reached that level, that pinnacle so young and so quickly and he would sort of see Tommy and I mean no disrespect to Tommy at all when I say this but Tommy at that point you know was was struggling I think to live with all of that uh when I asked Tommy Rich on a road trip once you know I said Andy have any uh pictures or tapes you know when you beat Harley Race you you won the world championship and he cut me off he's like no I don't have any of it and he then that was the end end of the conversation I mean, to me, I think his his glory days haunted him a bit, and I'm happy to see that now he's kind of come full full circle and you know part of this wrestling school and seems to enjoy talking about wrestling again, which I think is cool. And he didn't wasn't bitter for the rest of his life, but there were so many examples to 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 see. You know, uh, Eddie Gilbert died. Who was you know I thought Eddie Gilbert was going to be my mentor after I turned heel, and that we'd be together for years and and do all these great things. Uh, and then, you know, he ends up leaving Memphis and going to Puerto Rico and uh, he passes away. And at that point, you know, Brian was 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 not and I'm because his physique looked a little freakish. I'm not going to say he was completely clean, obviously, uh, but clearly it, it was performance enhancing drugs to improve his appearance because he knew that that was the look that he would need to get to WWF. Now, certainly that. It could play uh, a part in some of his. I, I saw him get in a couple of you know shoving matches backstage with guys. He had a he always had a quick temper. Did it get worse when when he started getting bigger? You know with the steroid temper. I I I I can't say for sure. And oddly enough, around this time he got married <laughs> to this to this um, this Mark Deva who who was and she was a really sweet girl, but I think. It was just odd to to me. It never made any sense. But it was almost like Brian wanted to have this marriage in place, a son in place, for when he got the call to WF that he would have that that unit at home waiting for him. I think he he really I think he was a really sensitive guy who who really wanted love, but didn't 
know exactly what it was or how to give it because no one had really nurtured him that way beyond his mother. And I know he loved Kay and they were, they were very close. And Kay was a very sweet lady in all my experiences and put up with a lot, put up with a lot of crap from all of us because we would destroy her, her living room. Uh, but she was always his biggest fan. Uh, but I think, you know, there's only so much that a mother can do. You know, eventually you get to the age like, mom, you know, cut it out. But you really want that bond with your with your with your father. Uh, and I think that that really fueled, uh, fueled Brian. And, and he was enjoying it so much when Lawler, you know, made those initial appearances. WWF was making appearances on the road, but then, you know, really started appearing back on t- TV most Saturdays and most Monday nights. And the WWF guys, they were, you know, they were start, they were starting to send the heavy hitters, the Undertaker, uh, Bret Hart, you know, all these guys were coming in. And I think Brian was having the time. I think that was probably the best time of Brian's life. You know, because he's hanging out with his he's hanging with his dad. They're going to the towns. It's almost like they're best friends. And that's really what the relationship came off like to me. And I think it. You know, saying that to some people instantly, I don't know how you feel as a father. You know, I don't have any children. That may sound a little messed up to you. I don't, I mean, does it, Brian? You have to be a parent first and a friend second. Yeah. I don't think you can successfully be a parent if you just want to be your child's friend. And I, and I think that even though, you know, Brian obviously enjoyed all that aspect of it. Uh, and loved the travel, loved being recognized, just like Jerry. I mean, you know, Jerry's biggest thing is he's not hooked on drugs. He's not hooked on alcohol, never never done any of that stuff. But he is hooked on the fame aspect of it. And it's very it's, – and, and, and again, the wrestling business, once it gets in your blood, it's it's very hard to get out. And I just remember being a little surprised that Brian never decided to maybe – steer back and maybe get back on track to being a um, physical therapist or, or doing something other than professional wrestling. You know, um, it seemed once he started making those initial trips and going to Louisville where the wrestling groupies were still really wild. And man, I heard some, just some disgustingly, <laughs> I mean, I would all hear all these stories secondhand of what was going on in Louisville. And, uh, I just was like, man, oh man. But, um, and I remember I commented on that one time and Brian just made sure the entire locker room heard it. Cause I was like, I was, he was talking about something, this wild sex thing with these groupies. And I just said, no, thanks, man. And I should have said, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm screwing a hot piece at my girlfriend's en- enough for me. But I said, I, I said, no, man, making love to my girlfriend's enough for me. <laughs> and he goes, make it love, make it love. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of times what you saw with Brian on TV was exactly how he was backstage. I mean, we would just constantly just just needle each other and try to embarrass one another backstage with with these zingers. And I remember after uh, I started dating my high school girlfriend, I started dating this college girl and she was completely different from most. And she was kind of pale and kind of a goth chick. And, you know, she'd wear a nine inch nails t-shirt with no bra and these black Converse high tops. But there was something about her that I just absolutely loved. And, and, but I could also see where a guy like Brian wouldn't be attracted to that, you know, because his girl, his girlfriend who became his wife, Dave, I mean, she had 
makeup like uh, Tammy Faye Baker, you know, it was just like this thick makeup with, and she was always orange. You know, I don't know if they shared the same tanning bed or what, but uh, Brian goes, he hollered out to the locker room. He goes, he goes, oh, anybody see Scott Bound's girlfriend? Oh my gosh. Pale? What is her, what's her name? Christy or is it Pasty? And he starts, you know, kind of doing that laugh. And I just made a road trip with Brian and Dave and Jerry and they were playing like we were playing like trivia game and David didn't know how many planets there were. And then Lawler goes, can you even name one planet, David? And she's, she's thinking for a moment and Brian's like, going, come on, David, <laughs> he's getting all hot. <laughs> and she goes, uh, the, oh, what it, the world. Wow. And Jerry goes, Dave, what the world? What do you mean the world? Okay, but what's the Earth called? I don't know. <laughs> and we are all just howling, laughing. And Brian is so getting, he's just furious, just smoke coming out of his ears. And Lawler go, Jerry Lawler goes, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, uh, let's give her some help here. What's the name of uh, Mickey Mouse's? dog and i swear to god i thought she was gonna say goofy but she goes oh wait a minute no pluto pluto <laughs> pluto's a planet oh my lord and so after brian you know slams christy and does all that i go i just deadpan and all the guys are looking at me and i go mm, yeah that may be at least my girlfriend knows the name of the goddamn planet we're living on <laughs> <laughs> what did and he brian, say yeah. No, right, but Ryan kind of looked at me like, "Nah, you dick." <laughs> you know, and when I said that, I said he may come after me, but he didn't. He just kind of looked at me like, "All right, that was pretty good, you jackass." Hey, I want to ask you the whole teetotaler thing. How much of that is because of his dad? It very well could have been influenced by that. I know that that Kevin to this day has, has never tried. And actually I, Kevin went out with us on New Year's Eve once and in, in 95, I think, or 96. And he got so mad at me because I, I, I didn't realize just how serious uh, he was about this. And it was strictly, I think, to have this common thing in, in, with his dad. You know, he had heard his dad for so long, just be so much against it. Uh, I, I've always kind of speculated and like wondered if there was some there was an alcoholic in, in, in Jerry's life. But again, that's I have no idea. I have no idea what his family life was like. I don't think so. I think it just he just didn't like it. Uh, and Kevin has always been the same way. And Brian, even though he I think had had a few incidents, uh, you know, just a typical high school guy, you know, uh, you do, you know, you get a bottle of booze and you drink too much and you throw up. Right. And I think he went to a strip joint once and got busted for drinking or something like that. But other than that, I mean, I think two or three times that was the extent of the incidents. And, and he was so, and I remember, I remember having a sausage biscuit. There was a McDonald's obviously across the street Poor Nate, the rat, God bless Nate, the rat, uh, you know, had to run over there and get Lawler's uh big Mac and fries and ended up getting uh, it all shoved back in his face. But I, I, I was over there and Brian goes, Oh my God, what are you eating? I was like, what? He's like, dude, you realize how many ca you'll have to burn off uh, uh, 897 calories if you eat that whole thing. God, so disgusting. 
I mean, he, he was <laughs> now. Granted, he was taking copious amounts of roids. I think at that point, and I actually reminds me of another zinger. He was like Bowden. Look at this chest. You take a picture of your chest, and take a picture of my chest, uh, and and show the, you what woman is going to pick you over me. I said, well, that's fair enough. But then if you took a picture of my back and took a picture of your pimply face back, <laughs> they might choose me. <laughs> wow. Because, you know, brought, you know, the typical kind of uh, steroid acne uh, on his, on his back. But, uh, you know, but Brian, you know, he was, uh, I, and I thought that the, when he, when he was in that baby face mode around 94 and 95, I really thought he was getting stale. You know, I, I think he did, you know, he, he loved the money that he was making. Cause he, man, he was, he wasn't doing like Dundee or the fabs or those guys, but he was definitely the king of the gimmick table at that point. And, and really, man, he was over, he was over big time. Uh, wasn't, again, it's, it's hard to say because we weren't drawing, uh, like the, the heyday of Memphis wrestling, but for that sm- small circle circle of fans, uh, he was over big time and he loved, and he loved, and actually, and he loved that aspect of it. You know, sometimes it would, it would even, it just, it sort of bugged me sometimes when, when the fans would, would approach me. And I was surprised that I felt that way. Um, uh, I think it was that weird dichotomy of just, of, of being a heel in your hometown. You know, you have so many friends who know you one way I was using my real name cause I never dreamed it would go that far. And I think it, it just it was just strange for people to look at you in two different ways. Uh, but with Brian and 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 Jerry and even Kevin on a, to a, to a smaller degree, they just always embrace that and and love putting forward you know this perception of what their life is like, and and then there's the reality of it. Brian eventually did get a shot in the WWF, which, as you said, he had always wanted. What was that like for you to see him finally on Monday Night Raw? Oh man, I, I you know, Brian and I, uh, I, I, I never told him because I was, I, I was never going to put him over really, you know, to, to him because he would just, he would take the piss out of me over it, you know. He'd probably like, ah, shut up. But man, I was, I, I thought he was great, and I, I just expected him, despite the size problem. I thought that they, they would find some way he could be the leader of a faction where, you know, sort of playing the Michael Hayes part uh, where he doesn't wrestle as much as the, you know, the other guys in his faction, kind of the chicken shit heel, but who somehow finds a way to win. I just thought he was, I, I really did. I, I thought he was going to just uh, go far and, and make it to the top of the cards. And, you know, he, he found the right gimmick and he clicked with uh, Scotty too hottie. It was not necessarily what I envisioned for him, uh, because to me it was sort of like a playoff on PG 13. Um, but (laughs) you know, you can't argue with it. And Brian did, you know, I think every single time he came out there doing the grave digger, you know, entrance and stuff, uh, it just tripped me out. And then the post-match dance with Rikishi. And I think the relationship with he and Rikishi led him astray. Um, I think that Brian had a hard time, with a lot of the boys when he got to WWE. Uh, we all know that Jerry Lawler had some problems, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the show at the Royal rumble, the backstage, they, um, uh, let's just say the answer was, was rather shitty. And, um, 
Vince McMahon had to intervene. And eventually, you know, I think Jerry kind of won people over with with his announcing. But Brian, I think, carried that same swagger that he had in the Memphis wrestling dressing room to WWE, and it was not appreciated. And I think some people let him know about it. I think that was a huge blow to his ego. And I think that's what led him to it was almost like because wrestling is so much like high school unfortunately <laughs> and i think that that led him like the only way maybe he felt like he was going to be accepted is if he started escaping um i don't think he was a guy who knew how to deal with his feelings at that point of you know he's no longer the big fish in the little pond and almost being jerry lawler's son would, may have been more of a of a detriment but he was accepted in this and this crew that includes, I know we partied with Scott Hall and one, two, three kid. And he, you know, I think Rikishi was the one who like really turned him on to some different things that I, the Brian that I knew never would have touched and had things stayed the same with the territories. And Brian had had this home base in Memphis. Uh, I think a lot of this wouldn't have happened. But I think after the after a couple of locker room incidents where uh, Brian was was taken down a peg in front of the boys, that this was his way of yeah. You know, and again, maybe I'm reading too much, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead because I, I just I, I was crazy about Brian the wrestler, and I respected him as a human being. You know, I I when I wrote that article, I went to his to the high school and I interviewed his English teacher. And he's like, I said, I understand Brian's a straight A student. He goes, oh, he's he's one of the most intelligent students I've ever had. Matter of fact, we held a, he's probably going to kill me for telling you this. We I had a po- we had a poetry contest. He won it. He's he's a he's an outstanding poet. And I was like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah, absolutely. He goes, I, I think he's I think Brian could do whatever he want he whatever he wants to do. And it's just hard for me to think that that for, for that for Brian it, it it ended in a in a jail cell. It's it's just it's like a nightmare. It's like a it's like a Twilight Zone episode. Um, it, which is not to say that it was totally unexpected. I wrote a column back in two thousand nine about Brian uh, these fights that he was starting to get into and the arrests that started piling up on the independent scene, and he actually got wind of it. And threatened to kick my ass. He said, if I ever stepped into Memphis, that he would find me. He said he called, he left a message for me one time saying that Rikishi knew people in LA that they would find me and that they were, they, they were going to hurt, hurt me badly, that I would never write anything again. Wow. And then eventually I got him on the phone and I said, listen, all right, Brian, this needs to stop. If you'll actually take time to read the damn thing, I think you're, I think you heard something secondhand. All I'm saying is, you should be on top. You should be. I keep seeing legacy with Cody Rhodes and Ted DiBiase Jr. Two guys, you know, Cody is, is again, he's one of these guys who he had to work harder, I think, to have that personality that Brian had just so naturally. He's developed into a superstar because he's worked his butt off, you know, but, but Brian, you know, just had it and squandered it. Um, but, I, but my point to him was I said, Brian, you don't belong. In a in a dressing room in Dyersburg, Tennessee, getting hit with a baseball bat, you know, you should be on tour with WWE. That was my whole point about it. And quite frankly, every time somebody calls and asks me about you, 
my immediate thought is, my God, he, he's he's dead. And, you know, I wrote that in the article. You know, I was not only worried about his career being over, um, but his life. And to me, if the career ended, he wouldn't be far behind. But I, I always thought that his, his heart would give out. And I, without being too sappy or, or sentimental, I think sitting in that jail cell uh, in solitary, not understanding why his Again, I, I, I know that I, I know the family had to do what they had to do, um, and I think Brian probably coming down off of whatever he was on. Uh, I'm sure his dopamine was completely depleted at that point, and solitary will mess. I mean, from what I understand, mess with the most hardened criminal. Um, I don't know why he wasn't immediately put into rehab. I think that, that had something to do with the judge. Uh, I know some of some of the family were involved in it because let's. I'm going to just be honest here. We, they were having trouble getting Brian out of his grandmother's house. He basically had all of his possessions. Um, I think it's some trash bags and was just sort of bouncing around. And they said he could stay there for a while, and they were having trouble getting him out. And I think this was part of the way for them to get his stuff out, clean the place up, and and finally sell it. Uh, and I remember a few weeks ago, Kevin, you know, telling me about this and I, uh, and I had like a brief thought that somebody might, might kill him in prison or he might commit suicide. I mean, it was just very uh, kind of a fleeting thought, but when you've, you got to understand that when you've, when you've talked with his brother and it's really bothered Kevin, you know, and Kevin's no angel. I want to I want to be upfront with that, and he'd be the first to admit it. But it, it just seemed like Kevin was reaching the breaking point with with all of this. You know, um, he didn't know how to get through to Brian, and uh, so it, I, I, you know, oddly enough, I was in Memphis the the morning. Mean, I was in Memphis that morning. I was flying back. Um, and I was, and I remember just being exhausted and we just got a new dog and we were out walking and Kevin called and he told me, he said, man, my brother just hung himself in jail. And the doctor said he's, he's brain dead. And even though it was, it was a phone call that I knew was going to come at, at some point, I, I didn't, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect it to, to end that way. And it shouldn't, I mean, nobody, nobody should have to, to die that way. Um, there've been a lot of stories that have come out about Brian, you know, it almost seemed like he maybe again, speculating, uh, maybe a little bipolar. It just seems like, you know, people have these great stories of him being the most incredible guy, the nicest guy going out of his way to visit a sick fan, to give half his money back on an, on a indie show when, he really didn't have a pot to piss in at the end. And again, when I say that kind of stuff, I'm not, I'm not making fun of him. I'm angry about it. I'm, I'm frustrated because Brian, I think should have been a superstar, but maybe to an extent he felt entitled being the son of of Jerry Lawler didn't work as hard enough as he should have. But I think a lot of it was, was, was wanting acceptance too. 
And once he fell into that drug scene in the WWE locker room, it was at the height of, you know, that was in the Attitude Era. From what I understand, drugs were rampant, WCW and WWE, you know, but Brian, but for, you know, Brian just wanted to be one of the boys. And if he felt that that was the only way he could do it, it's just sad. And again, I just, I, I hate to point to the waste of talent, but, you know, Jeff Jarrett just recently got into WWE Hall of Fame and, you know, you can debate whether or not that was deserving. Um, I think so, just because I saw how awkward Jeff was when he started. And I know what he went through to, to pay his dues and earn the respect of the locker room. And that's one thing that, that I don't think Brian truly ever did. Um, he's almost he's almost too talented for his own good on the Natch early in his career. Well, let's change the pace just a little bit here, uh, Scott, before we wrap things up. Favorite Brian Christopher matches or moments in front of the camera? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> well, a lot of people have been posting the the Red Wagon deal where uh, Jerry, <laughs> Jerry Jarrett just put all the, I think it was like three championships on him, which at this point, I think that it, it was following the merger with World Class. So they had more belts than they knew what to do with. And Brian wins them all. And he comes out with the little red wagon because he can't possibly carry him and wear them all. And then he and then he has a big scale to follow. <laughs> and he's putting them on the scale. He's weighing them, and he keeps putting his thumb on the scale to make the belts weigh more. <laughs> and I don't even, you know, and that very well could have been a thing that he wasn't even planning to do, and that it just one of those magical moments that just happens because you could just barely see it in the background. And of course, Dave Brown goes, "Hey, hey, wait a minute! You got your thumb on the scale. Do not, do not." And that was too. That was another thing too. That you know, whereas Jerry Lawler would study these joke books and and practice these one liners, Brian's stuff was 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 just as funny, if not funnier, because they weren't really jokes. It was more his reaction to things. I, I like I remember when the championship got held up, the Southern Championship between uh, Brian and and uh, Tom Pritchard, and Eddie Marlin had reversed this decision. And they were doing some kind of angle with with Eddie and and Brian, and Eddie Marlin got suspended, right? And Brian comes out there and he's like, "Oh, this is a great day. They've, they've overturned the decision. I've got the belt again, and Eddie Marlin's fired." And Dave Bray goes, "No, no, 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 not 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 true. Suspended. Fired." And they keep going back and forth with suspended, fired, fired, he's fired. And uh, again, it's it's not it's not a great one liner. It's just Brian being Brian, you know. Um, uh, another thing that too that just always just killed me was how the Lawler boys and Jerry and 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 not just with me but with Nick and all of the you know it's, it's just this crew of misfits really. We would all like use and not with the, without even thinking about it. We would use wrestling terminology to talk about our lives, you know. Oh, you know, like if I made that crack about Deva. Oh, oh, Bowden, you better be careful going around Deva, man. You got a lot of heat, a lot of heat there. <laughs> Brandon stooged you off. You better be careful. Um, and it just would just, I don't know, man, it's just, it was hard to keep a straight face doing it once you realized that you were, but you might go like 10 or 20 minutes, like talking that way, just go, wait a minute, what am I doing? You know, using all these wrestling terms uh, to talk about my so-called real life. 
And another another nice little moment too, where he was trying. I remember he was, I think he was one half of the WWE Tag Team Champions, and at, at the height of when Raw was selling out everywhere, and my nephew Jake wanted to go to the matches, and I was like, oh god, that means I'm gonna have to call Brian. And he's like, please, please, you know, my nephew's begging me, so I did. And Brian, and, I'm, and this is why this is why Brian would answer the phone. Whenever I would call him, Kevin kind of does this too. And and really, to an extent, Jerry does too. Every time I call, it's like, geez, geez, like, God, what do you, what do you, what do you, God? It's like, it's like, it's just so draining, you know, for him to answer the phone. Oh, geez, what, what do you want? <laughs> it's like, well, man, I really appreciate it. You know, if you get these tickets for my nephew, geez. You know, like what? Like it was like it's such an outrageous request, man. God, why should I? And I'm like, Brian, come on, man, it's for me. But I don't know him, so you know me. He's like, yeah, well, uh, all right. <laughs> you know, and I, I felt like even though I'd gotten what I wanted, I felt awful after I looked at the phone. Like it was like it made me just feel like shit, right? And my sister called me afterward. She goes, oh, my God, it was so great. And I said, how? And I was worried because I go, how are the seats? She's like, he got his ringside. And, you know, I, I just that's that's just sort of that's sort of Brian. You know, he's going to give you a hard time. He's going to make you go through hoops to get it. But then he's going to be a good guy and uh, not only get seats for a sold out show, but uh right near ringside i think it was like second i think it was like second or third row and my nephew was just on cloud nine well that's one of the things certainly there have been some crazy stories for the last several years of fights and locker rooms and different incidents but since he passed there have been a number of stories i've seen of people talking about his kindness you know, some of these I, I'm just hearing for the first time, uh, and it seems like all the all the good stuff about Brian, all the good stories, all the positive things, uh, have been overshadowed by the insanity of of an addict's life, which is a shame, and and that's part of the reason why I would I just want to have this discussion with you to, to just tell you a little bit more about the Brian who I knew because he was not he was not that guy he was he was not a an addict who. He, he's more than an addict who made bad choices. They, they, they certainly were bad choices. But I just, yeah, yeah you'd have to understand though. That toward the end, when he's leading cops on a chase and drinking from a bottle, that's not having fun. You know, getting arrested in a McDonald's parking lot for being intoxicated—that's not a good time. This is it. It is, it, and I believe me, I come from a family of addicts. It is to feel numb. And I think for Brian, just that standard was set so high, being not only Jerry Lawler's son, but the fact that he was so good, young, and just seemed destined for great things. And I think when he started to kind of look around and and see what his life was turning into, that man, that that would be hard to deal with. And and, and the guy who was always smarter than everybody else, who had the good-looking girlfriend. Just who seemed to have it made, he's the guy in prison, and he's the guy who keeps getting arrested. He's the guy who's washed out of the WWF and and never going back. And 
that was the that was the biggest bond that he shared with his father is is taken away. I mean, this was a guy who was hurting. I I think. I mean, why else would would he keep this vicious cycle going? I don't think he knew how to cope and how to get out of it without drugs and alcohol. And the judge had sort of made it clear that they were going to put him in rehab, but that he would be tested, and that if he flunked that, that you know, prison was likely. I mean, at least that's, I, you know, again, I, I can't remember exactly verbatim what everything that I've heard. And I don't, in a way I feel bad sharing all, but I, I just feel like eventually all of this is going to come out anyway. And I've already heard some stuff that was true and some stuff that was not just being spewed about everywhere. Cause everyone wants to break the story. As far as I know, I was one of the first ones to, to know about it. Uh, I think I texted you, Brian, uh, couldn't get a hold of you. And, um, I texted Mark James and Jerry Jarrett. And the only one I even spoke, got to speak to was, was, was Mark about it. And Mark uh, didn't, I didn't say anything either because, you know, we do respect the family. Um, but this is the way that I understand that it all happened. And I just hope people just let up a little bit on Brian and realize that this was a, this was a smart kid who I think just like all of us, you know, we want to be loved and we want to be accepted and we want to have a good life. And it, it just, it just, and it just, I mean, it just had to sting, man, that it didn't turn out that way for him. I, I, I wish things would have been different for him. As we wrap things up here, Scott, it's certainly been a heavy hour and a half and we've had some laughs and we've also had some uh, things to really think about here, but, when you look back on the life and the career of Brian Christopher Lawler, what do you think is his legacy? What does he leave behind? Sadly, I think it's just, it's a lot of wasted potential. Um, but I will say that for, for the fans, and especially in Memphis, who got to see him develop weekly, and and go from being this mass TV jobber, and even the even the Twilight Zone. I just I don't I think I think that was Jerry. I'm not entirely sure who gave him that. And then the ridiculousness of the new kids and the fact that it came from the from the Observer and and Jeff Bowdrin is just hilarious. Just everything about you know the the whole early days of Brian's run, and then playing off the the too sexy song, which is just absurd. And I would always call, come out there and call him too sleazy, and you know, they, they've kind of put up with me developing my skill on the mic. The first time I cut a promo about Brian, I was like, you know, Brian's the only guy I know goes to a VD clinic to, to meet women. And I got to the, <laughs> I, and I, yeah, and in the same interview, I also made a crack about Lawler. I said, the only reason he's not over the hill is because he never climbed it in the first place, which is a, <laughs> which is a line lifted straight from Dan shock at the famous hill columnist for the aftermax. Um, and I got to the back and boy, they were both steamed. <laughs> <laughs> like BD clinic. Oh my God. David's going to, Oh, you got to heat with David. And then Brian's and Lawler's like, ah, oh, I'm old. I'm just an old man. <laughs> Don't have any business being in the ring. <laughs> so I quickly learned, uh, that I needed to watch myself a little bit, uh, on, on promos. But, uh, I know it's going to be tough on, on Kevin and, and Kay, uh, his, his mom over the next several months. And I know, um, uh, it's got it's got to be tough, got to be tough for Jerry. Uh, whether or not he he loved him like a father or as as a best friend, um, 
it's still somebody who was very special to him and it had to be painful over the last several years to to watch his son change like he did and and I know I know Jerry tried. I mean, I know that they sent him to rehab. I know WWE uh, tried as well. Brian, it seemed like Brian would do everything he could to get thrown out of it, like do just enough, uh, say for a couple of weeks, and then just be defiant and get thrown out. And part, I think part of it for a while there, it was almost like, yeah, Scott Hall, they made him go to rehab, and yeah, he's sober. I, you know, I think he looked at it as like with the same bravado that he always sort of hid behind, you know, like I'm the one that's going to, you know, do my own thing. I'm not going to change and I'm going to be okay. Uh, but that's tough to do, man. When, when you're on your own in the wrestling business and, you know, I think you've lost your, your career, you've lost, you know, your, your wife. I don't know the last time he saw his, his son. Um, all of that would be tough for anybody to handle. And then on top of that, you're in Memphis, you've just been arrested and you're Jerry Lawler's son. I I just, I just want people to think about that a little bit. And remember this, this is, this, this came, this came about because just the guy just, you know, he, he wanted to be, he wanted to be a star, but he wanted to be loved. He wanted to be, you know, somebody who was loved by their father and, and loved by uh, by his son and his family, but maybe just didn't know how. Couldn't be, you know. He he and Kevin had a bond, but he couldn't quite give everything that he could have to Kevin, because um, that would be almost like a sign of weakness. I think uh, I would have loved to have been closer to Brian and and been a friend with him, but he's hard to reach, and 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 that's sad. But I think he, I think deep down, him I and he was a good guy, and and quite frankly, the most natural talent I've ever seen. Uh, in the wrestling business. It's a shame that he didn't develop that talent. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, I just want to remind everybody, Kentucky Fried Wrestling uh, is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Uh, thank you for bearing with us. Uh, I just, we didn't really have anything planned. I just wanted to talk a little bit about a guy who I considered a friend, whether or not he thought of me that way. Uh, certainly was an admirer of his. and. I just want to say to Kay and Kevin and Jerry, I'm, I'm really, I, I really feel for you. Um, I wish that Brian were still with us. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling.